Hi there, welcome back. We're listening to the John Stewart show. Trump and who deserves justice. That the man will keep you down. Is that where we're at? Is that where we're headed, gentlemen? It's a sad day. It's a sad day in America when uh, uh, that's the case. I, I think this is a case, something that I called the uh, peacock prosecution. So you have someone that is so out there that is essentially a, a, an indictment in human form who is just daring the system to uh, take it on. And takes for 50 up, years. For, for, for yes. For 50 yes, years. Yes, for decades, the, whether in real estate development or whatever other uh, uh, corners of uh, the economy he was dealing with. And uh, it, it moves all of the focus over to this particular uh, uh, indictment, uh, whereas you know, the litany of other uh, white-collar crime, corporate crime, that goes on uh, is forgotten. And the true state of our justice system, uh, where who you are certainly matters a whole lot more than what you did, is is obscured and and now it's it's refracted through this lens of uh, political uh, prosecution uh, rather right. than rather than the, the 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 real biases in our justice system. That 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 is exactly. And Phil, what is it in your mind when you see that Republicans have just discovered that the justice system in America may not be fair? What must run through your mind, Phil? So, <laughs> I, I, they might be onto something. <laughs> Are you agreeing with them, sir? They, they really might be onto something. <laughs> um, you know, and I, I, I want to be really clear. Um, I think that their, their formal position yes. of defund law enforcement is wildly unpopular. Um, yes. uh, I think that... Uh, they want chaos, it, Phil. Chaos. Well, they, they've been defunding law enforcement in the sense of trying to defund the, the DA's office in Manhattan. They have defunded yes. the IRS. Um, yes. And they've allowed, uh, really, crime to grow rampant. Let, let me tell you a little bit about the crime <laughs> I'm talking about. Um, this because, is turn, this I, conversation's I mean, on its head. I'm saying, I, I, I really want to say, they are allowing crime to be rampant, and here's what I mean. Yes. So if I were to um, walk up to you and steal your wallet, that would yes. be a robbery. Right. Mm. Um, and robbery is heavily, heavily um, enforced. It's regulated. People will come. They will beat you up. They will try and get that money back. Yes. But if I work in a corporation and I steal money out of the pockets of my employees, that's not called robbery. It's called wage theft. So in this country in 2019, mm. what is the amount of, let's say, formal robbery to wage theft? Oh, I'm sure stealing of wallets is much more uh, it's wildly uh, out of control. Grander. It, in the sense that wage theft is literally over a hundred times larger in the amount of money than robbery. A hundred times. We have over four billion dollars um, $40 billion of wage theft um, and about $340 million worth of robbery. Right. And yet the IRS, when which is that's the enforcement arm that would go and look at things like, like wage, wage theft. Or, uh, so it takes about 75% of its human being hours towards people making less than a million dollars, who people who are worth less than a million dollars. And if you want to make sure you are audited by the IRS, the number one category, up until the point where they stopped reporting it publicly because we've been looking bad for them, is folks who, who belong to the very elite category of EITC, that's the Earned 
income tax credit, which is the lowest wage earners. Yes. Means that you are five and a half times more likely as uh, getting EITC than in any other group to be audited by the IRS. These are the folks that we choose to prosecute, not the people who are getting money and taking money literally illegally. Now, Phil, the, the, the question that becomes is, if these corporations engaging with wage theft would just keep this money in their wallets, then we might have something. Then we might have a mechanism. Uh, David, you you know, you, you look at these uh, uh, systems of corporate. Now, when we talk about wage theft or we talk about, we're not even necessarily uh, talking about all the fraud and all the uh, white collar crime, forgetting about even the derivatives monstrosity that caused the 2008 financial crisis. We don't look at white collar crime, wage theft, fraud as crime. It's looked upon as uh, a kind of price of doing business in the same way that like, you know, we would find out H- uh, SBC uh, launders money for drug cartels. And instead of throwing everybody in jail, we just ask them to give us a cut of it. Two uh, percent, let's say five billion dollars and we'll all go square. How do you convince people that what Phil is talking about, in other words, not funding the IRS to go after this, but we lose maybe almost, what, $800 billion a year? this kind of thing that is stolen you know just tax evasion i think is 175 billion yeah i mean the amazing thing is that uh this this is a relatively new development this impunity for for corporate and white collar crime in the 1980s after the savings savings and loan crisis Mm -hmm. we saw a thousand bankers go to jail um in the enron frauds uh, and uh, the accounting scandals of the early 2000s, we did see people go to jail. Um, And what happened was that out of that Enron task force and out of the the crimes that were conducted there and and the convictions that were gotten there, uh, there was a change in the Justice Department in the way it handled corporate crime. There was a memo by a guy named Larry Thompson, who was part of the Enron task force. Oh, Phil's starting to <laughs> nod. That's a bad sign. <laughs> Phil is nodding. It's a very bad sign. Go ahead, who, David. You know, previously, the options for the Justice Department, when they found uh, uh, corruption or fraud in a corporation, it was prosecute mm-hmm. or don't prosecute. And then this third option in the Thompson memo came forward. And it was called uh, the Deferred Prosecution Agreement. Uh, deferred, pro- yes, deferred prosecution agreements actually came out of juvenile delinquency like a, a century ago. If you were a kid and we, we didn't want to prosecute a kid and ruin his life. So we we'd do a deferred prosecution agreement where we we would watch him and monitor him. And, and over years, if wow. he if he rehabilitated, we would get him back into uh, regular society. And, and so we wouldn't prosecute initially. Is the uh, so, thought there then that, that corporate brains are not fully developed yet? Yeah, so pretty much. They, we have to wait until yeah. they gain a more sophisticated understanding of right and wrong. Exactly. So we really don't want to do anything yet. Exactly. So with DPAs, which started, by the way, uh, the very first DPA in a corporate context was by uh, a, a woman who was a prosecutor of the Southern District in New York. Uh, attorney's office named Mary Jo White, who prosecuted sure, Prudential, Mary jo White. Prudential with a, a deferred prosecution agreement. She later became 
the head of the SEC, and after that is now the personal lawyer of the Sackler family. <laughs> the personal lawyer of the Sackler family. Um, so, uh, uh, now wait a even, even Faust, even the <laughs> devil, the devil himself is now saying, like, you really want to take those people on, that family? <laughs> is that what you want? Now, that was a rare case in 1994, but a decade later, the Thompson Memo comes out in 2003, and DPAs are, are pretty much not used very much. But after that, they explode. They become the standard way in which uh, these uh, uh, prosecutions are carried out. They, they are uh, essentially given a fine. There is an independent monitor set up that, like, hey, for five years, we're going to be watching you. It's we like might, we might do this prosecution. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and usually nothing ever happens. That, that was true in the HSBC case, by the way, that there was a DPA there. Right. And uh, this is how it goes. And, and prosecutions of individuals have gone down precipitously since that right. time. Which, which is why this all seems so shocking. Phil, you know, it, it's, it's the kind of thing that makes you realize, oh, right, in the two-tiered, uh, because I'll tell you why I think the government is doing that, the DPAs. I don't know that they're necessarily corrupt. I think they're fucking tired. They don't have the resources or the money to go after these criminals and prosecute them in the way, because if, you're, if your wallet is thick, you can delay, you can throw obstacles at it, and, and is it that they've learned not to even bother to just get what they can get. Is that what this is? So, in the, I'm so glad we're talking about the Thompson memo. I didn't know how nerdy we were going to get and how quickly we were going to get there. Oh, we're getting nerdy, baby. We're going Thompson memo. <laughs> and it's only getting worse. You talked about it being the bankers' uh, brains aren't fully formed, which, you know, I don't know how many bankers you know. That may be actually true. Maybe. But I actually think it's the other piece, which is we should be able to preserve their innocence until later. Right. Because these aren't people that seem like they're criminals. That was the idea of DPAs in the juvenile context, which interestingly are reserved for folks who aren't black or Latin. Right. Folks who aren't Native American right. um, now in the ways that we do DPAs in the juvenile context, which is why to this day, black kids who are under 18 are 18 times more likely to be tried as adults. Right. than are white kids. So this are idea are DPAs of like, oh, still in use for juveniles to some extent. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, I mean, like, like much but, less. But so. not, not if you're African American, then but, it's 18 times more likely that they go. Oh, we've seen enough. I don't. Yeah. I don't know that we need to defer this. I think we're okay. Right, right. 14, but you kind of you crimed like you were 18 years it old. It looks very much yeah. like you could grow a beard. I think we're done yeah. here. Exactly, exactly. I'm upset because you look more masculine than I do, <laughs> and therefore, so like part of our criminal justice system is set up to figure this out for who is deserving of certain kinds of punishment, who deserves to be constrained and bound, mm -hmm. and who has made a mistake or had mistakes happen around them, but they're not the crime type of people. Right. And so the Thompson Memo essentially says, if you've got folks who they're going to delay forever, you can't really get them, you can't really prosecute, this gives you another avenue for managing it, but also, these crimes are so diffuse, they're systems errors. They're people who were beneath them and they weren't really great managers. Do we really want to punish them for all those kinds of things? Um, in the same way that we used to not punish coaches when their um, subordinates would be the ones who were setting people up with cars um, uh, at, at the university. That's right. Now we, we say, yeah. They're victims of a lax system as opposed to uh, and, and, and what we've done is we've, 
we've allowed for the passive voice right. to happen for the people we don't want to prosecute, right? Crimes occurred in this general area, and a DPA allows you to say, hey, you, you existed where crimes occurred, not you were ultimately responsible for it, you benefited from it, your salary was dependent on the things that you got as a result and of it. And there's no admission of guilt. There's no, at a DPA, you just say, boy, this kind of got away from us, I would imagine. Is it, let, let me ask you how much the Supreme Court's changing of the definition of corruption, because it feels as though the society decided at some level that if we had a Venn diagram of unethical and illegal, right, and that area in the middle there, which is where I think Trump has built a hotel and casino, somewhere in between a lack of ethics and illegality, the system has decided to say, unless it's explicit, unless you walk into someone's office and say, I'm doing this to steal from old ladies' pension funds so that they'll have difficulty figuring out and I will be able to enrich, unless you explicitly make it quid pro quo or define it as corruption, does that then hamstring any ability for, whether it's the SEC or the Department of Justice, to prosecute something like this? I mean, that's true in the corruption context, certainly. Yes. Uh, the, the, that, that not was in the crime context, maybe. The, Right. And, and it's not like it's very hard to go around and find uh, massive pieces of documentary evidence. If you think back to the financial crisis, and I, mm -hmm. my first book was about this, um, it, you know, we ended up having uh, all of these mortgage-backed securities that were created. Uh, and they were not created in the style in which uh, they proved the actual ownership. The, 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 the documents were never conveyed. They were, they were mortgage in a molecules way. that, they were, were, that yes. were clumped together. And so in order to cover up for that, the banks mass produced on an industrial scale all of these uh, documents after the fact to prove that they were, in fact, the owner of these various uh, uh, homes and use them in court to foreclose on someone. So the idea that there was, oh, there's no documentary evidence, there's nothing there. There were literally millions of documents. There was a place in Georgia where millions of documents were mass produced and they were all done by multiple $15 an hour workers who were signing their names to these documents, signing someone else's name. Uh, they, they had, uh, you know, the names of these various and they, officers they just of the bank. They would just post-date it? As they, were back -dated, they were backdated. They were fabricated. Right. They, they used the name Linda Green because, and they asked DocX, this, this document fabrication company, why they used them. And they said, well, Linda Green's name, you know, we made her the vice president of this bank, and her name sure. was easy to spell for these various people, and so that, that's why we use Linda right. Green. So in the, the public records, in, the, in, the, in, in these uh, recording uh, agencies, there is Linda Green with 20 different ways of assigning her name. And nobody went to jail for that. Uh, uh, absolutely nobody was, uh, and, and, and the, the information is there. And what we ended up having is a series of settlements uh, that were, you know, DPA-like in nature, where uh, banks were told, uh, okay, you have to give principal reductions to people, or you have to give mortgage modifications to people, or, my favorite, your sentence is to give loans to lower-income people, which is a money-making activity. Wow. Is, like, like sentences. Your sentence is, you've got to get in the subprime business. That's your sentence. You've got to get into a, ugh.
payday loans. It's like telling someone convicted of robbery to open a lemonade stand. Like, like that. It, it, it's, it's ridiculous. And uh, this is the way we uh, dealt with the largest uh, operation of mass fraud uh, in recent memory. Explicit fraud where these uh, hedge funds were trying to pass toxic mortgage-backed derivative assets onto their clients knowing that they were shit and not telling them because they, and that's why they refuse to be fiduciaries. But Phil, this gets us into, so now let's, let's talk about the consequence of that lack of uh, any kind of accountability. All right. So Linda Green, or the many Linda Greens, uh, are signing away these, uh, these documents and they're post-dating them and they're getting back and people are being foreclosed on. And people are losing their jobs. And people are losing their homes. And they are left poverty-stricken and desperate. And what happens sometimes in communities that have been decimated by poverty? They turn to wage theft? Is that what you were going to go to? Boom, 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 boom. Is that? No. No, it's not. It's, it's robberies. It's That's the what I'm talking about. Okay, there we go. Yeah. We're talking so, about robberies. We're talking about crimes of desperation. We're talking about... Uh, drug use, alcohol use, lives of despair that put them at risk of going into the justice system where they will pay non-DPA penalties, correct? That, that's exactly correct. That's and so cycle. part of like, it's, it's in some ways, you, you said explicit fraud, and I actually think that's where a lot of the sort of the, the juice on this lives mm -hmm. because it's hard to show how explicit it is. Now, you draw the thread. It's easy to see. Someone had to know. But was it me? Was it Linda Green, who didn't exist? Like, was, was it this president of this bank? And did was you it mean it? On a Wednesday? Did you mean to commit the fraud? Right. right. And so, and I want to be clear, we're talking about this in the context of corruption because today is an, an historic day. Um, and I really want to make sure that that N comes at the end of an historic day because to. I am a professor. Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> but, at Yale, no less. Hey, uh, so, but it's not just for business corruption. This is also the standard for civil rights. So if you don't mean, it, so the one for one for one standard, um, which is how the federal government gets any kind of, DOJ gets any kind of civil rights investigation, says you have to engage in willful discrimination, which the way we've done that historically in the United States is, hey, I beat you up because you were black. Isn't enough. I beat up all the black people and I don't beat up white people. And I say that out loud. That isn't enough. I think black people deserve to be beaten. They have earned these beatings that I give them. Some of them deserve to be shot even if they didn't commit crimes. I can say all of those things, but if I don't say I'm doing this because you are black and because I hate black people, my prejudice is the animating force. If I don't get that explicit, I, then what you end up with is, now it's not a deferred prosecution agreement, but it is consent decree. It's the worst that that can happen, which is, hey, we kind of agree that what you did there was kind of messed up. It's not the chief's fault. It's not the training officer's fault. It's, but we're going we're gonna to watch you for a little while, and you're mm -hmm. not going to really comply. But we're going to have some metrics. You're going to broadly meet them, and then it's going to be expensive for the city, which, by the way, the poor people pay more of because remember how the taxes work. But that's how, And it's done. And at the core of all of this is that once you have systems and institutions, mm -hmm. we don't know how to think about accountability. We know how to think about making money off of those things. Right. We know how to be in charge of those things. We don't know how to hold individuals or systems accountable for the damages that they wreak. 
So because even though these things are so transparent, it's obvious what's happening in almost every police department around the country. It's obvious what's happening in the banking industry, in the subprime mortgage industry. All of those things were obvious that someone should have known. We can't decide on who and what the punishment should be, much less how to regulate those systems after the crisis has been born on the backs of vulnerable people. I, I think I would put that slightly differently in that I think we know how to find uh, those responsible and those culpable of those of those particular behaviors. Mm-hmm. We've lost the muscle memory, the the institutional memory of of actually summoning the will to do it. I mean, if you look at but David, did, when 19, do we have the institutional memory? Because when have we really? I understand that a thousand bankers maybe went to jail in the eighties, but the eighties was also the crack e- epidemic, and those bankers went to play tennis for about. 16 months, and somebody who bought crack on the street went to jail for 15 years. There, you know, there's no, have we, no, have question, we ever no really, question about that. Yeah. Uh, you know, in uh, you can say that we never had a golden age of white-collar crime. <laughs> we, we had, we had exactly. several... That's my point. We had several bronze ages or silver <laughs> ages, right? Um, but, but, but the mechanism, what I'm kind of talking about is the mechanism for how yeah. it would go about that is well-known. You you find you flip the lower level guys. You you get them into the corporate boardroom right. where the decision is. Actually. You do a RICO, exactly, and yeah. and and that is done in those contexts all the time. In in you know organized crime, uh, where the person you know isn't isn't wearing a three piece suit and in a in a C suite, we know how to do that. Right. Uh, so so the mechanism is there problem is uh, several fold. One is this sort of out that has been given through uh, the way the Justice Department prosecutes this stuff. The second is the sort of the mind share that prosecutors and the, the corporate defense attorneys have. They go to the same schools. They, uh, they, they, they live in the same neighborhoods. They're, mm-hmm. they're on friendly terms with one another. And they cut deals with one another, and 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 that cultural they grant grace and empathy well. to each other in the way that they don't to communities that they don't understand. That's correct, and 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 I think the judges are implicated in that too. So so you you have this this sort of idea, you know, um, uh, and and then there's this unwillingness on the part of uh, prosecutors to take a risk to say, no, we're actually going to try to hold this person responsible. Um, there's a, a famous uh, story. It's in the book, The Chicken Shit Club. Um, and uh, the, the book is by Jesse Eisinger, who's a very good uh, uh, Pulitzer Prize winner for uh, Publica. And The Chicken Shit Club refers to, a, it's actually James Comey, who comes to the uh, Southern District of New York, and right. he asks, how many people have lost a case here? And very proudly, nobody raises their hands. Uh, and he says, well, we call you guys members of the chicken chick club. Wow. And that's because you're not willing to fail. You're, you're, you're so desperate right. to stay away from losing a case that, that, that you're going to, uh, uh, you know, take the safe route. And that's what a DPA is. And that's what, you know, a fine is or a settlement or a consent decree. And, and so that's the culture that has built up. Right. And, and it's very hard to, you know, knock that down. Well, because it's also... Phil, I'll ask you this. Aren't we also operating against something reptilian in the human brain, which is white-collar corruption 
doesn't threaten my safety. Not understanding the idea of hollowing out the resources of a community or uh, creating giant swaths of entrenched poverty. Not thinking along those lines. What they think is my chaos is what, you know, if you looked at a video of somebody looting a store, right, you would think, my God, society has ultimately failed. But that is a metaphor for what so many of these bad corporate actors are doing on a much larger scale. But as long as they're not carrying it out in diaper bags, then it doesn't fucking look like anything. And so we don't view it as a harbinger of that kind of chaos. And I don't know how reptilian our brains need to be if it's on our nightly news every single night. Maybe um, we've been and, made reptilian in that way. And, and I, want, I want to be clear, there is nothing more consequential for somebody's long-term safety than their pension fund being raided. Right. right? You're highly unlikely to be victimized by violent crime in a, from a stranger. And if you don't live in these neighborhoods, that stuff is not coming for you, statistically speaking. Mm -hmm. And yet the pension rating that is happening all the time, the hundred times larger wage theft than robbery is coming for you. Mm -hmm. But this is what I mean by an inability to think about systems. And they're point taken in terms of we have the mechanisms there, but only when we recognize that the entire structure is a criminal enterprise. I would love it if we recognize that in banking right now, mm -hmm. but we do not. We have made it legal. In fact, we have made it um, something where you get to go and become president of a university um, after you have engaged in that kind of stuff. You get to go and run the largest philanthropic uh, uh, enterprise working in criminal justice systems if you have been a member of Enron. And yet, we understand that they are engaged absolutely on a daily basis in stuff that raids pension funds, engages in wage theft, and for which we do not have the means or the muscle memory of holding folks accountable because we've decided those people aren't the kinds of criminals we, we were thinking That's right. About. And if you have a right? felony so, conviction of taking somebody's wallet, you can't chaperone your kids' field trips. Even, right. if, you've, even if you've done your time and you've been out, there are uh, uh, a gentleman named Jay Jordan was, was letting us know about the 20,000 or so complications that arise from having a felony conviction on your record and all the things that you are uh, uh, prevented from doing in terms of licensing and renting something and buying something and uh, chaperoning something that ruin your lives. And like you said, uh, the redemption arc for many of these white-collar criminals or those that had just sucked the system dry of the money is a presidency at a university or a think tank or something else. And is it because, Phil, we're just more comfortable with the exploitation of certain groups? It just feels better. It feels more so, right. We're, we're comfortable with it. And, and a spoiler alert, a lot of that has to do with race. Wait, what? But yes. Yeah. So we're, we're more comfortable with it. trying to get my but... show canceled, young man. <laughs> but it's not. Thank you for calling me a young man. <laughs> but it's not just that, like, we collectively are more comfortable. I, I want responsibility to reside where it resides. The folks who set up the systems in the first place, who had maintained control over it, and who, by the way, are the ones who authorize the narratives that go on our, our televisions, all of those, the narratives that we get sold about what is safety are absolutely untethered to the reality of safety in vulnerable communities. Right. Right. And we have decided that our systems should, I mean, and this is now, it's sort of liberal doctrine right now, but it should bind some people and not protect them, protect other people and not bind them. Folks who end up being elite and privileged, right, we're, we're protected. 
Right? But we're not bound. Nothing that nothing that happens to a college for the most part. I, I'm still black, so like there's always a, a, a chance that something terrible is going to happen to me when I'm not wearing a sweater vest. But for the most part, I'm protected <laughs> and not bound. Right? And and the the places the folks who I grew up with, the folks who I am I am uh, connected to by blood, right. they are bound and they are not protected. And that's the pattern that I hope that we're going to see today is that Republicans bring it back to the full circle. Republicans who are outrage that Trump could possibly be bound by a legal system are saying, that's not what this system is supposed to do, and we should take money out of the system that does that. Right. Quite right. We should be defunding and taking money out of systems that unreasonably bind but do not protect individuals in our society. Only we should listen to the people who are bound and not protected more, more um, virally, which is vulnerable communities, not billionaires. Wow. Bars, my friend. Bars. David... It speaks to an idea that I think, you know, there's a new populist strain in this Republican Party that Donald Trump has harnessed, uh, kind of uh, imprinted by AM radio. That's kind of been imprinting that over the years in the majority of those red areas where it airs 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And it is powerful propaganda and a explicit reality distortion field that, mm -hmm. that is created. The populism that he rides on, somehow he's never uh, mentioned to the judges he's appointed. Because if you look at the doctrine of right-wing judges, they are anti-worker, anti-poor, uh, uh, anti-the people that they say they're best representing. Mm -hmm. So how do they twist this? How, how do they get out of that lockbox that they've, that they've placed themselves in? We are the populist party. We just never mentioned it to our judges or to the, the people that are writing the laws. Yeah, <laughs> never mentioned it to the policymakers. Um, right. So, I mean, I, I don't think it's too hard to uh, imagine a uh, set of, of uh, cognitive dissonance that goes on with uh, individuals who are using that that sort of man of the people populist kind of moniker mm -hmm. for their own purposes. I mean, Trump has really done this for his entire life. If you think about it, he's, right. he's the salt of the earth New Yorker that also, you know, wants a to, blue collar billionaire. <laughs> exactly. So uh, that that is not uh, terribly surprising to me. Uh, what what I think might uh, end up being interesting, as as Phil has, has brought out here, is if that cognitive dissonance sort of gets pierced by the spectacle of this indictment and the reality of the the criminal justice system. We've seen this come to the surface a little bit with the January six prosecutions, mm -hmm. and uh, you know these 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 discussions about oh it's 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 really horrible being locked up and they won't get me uh, you know the the proper food, and I'm, right. I'm really having a terrible All time. All I did was wipe my feces on the Speaker of the House's but, desk. But, but the point is, like, welcome to prison. Like, welcome to prison. This is this is a very punitive country, overly punitive, uh, when it comes to these. We're things. number one, baby. And we would, we would welcome a, a discussion about how to decarcerate uh, these, these various spaces uh, and and reserve them for the the, the crimes that are really uh, true and 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 systemic. I mean, because the problem is that 
The systemic crimes are not the ones that usually get prosecuted. It's the individual. Because they're not looking at it that way. They will find a way to twist it. What they're saying is, this is an anomaly based on your hatred of this one man who stands right. for the people. The actual system should be punitive to those street crimes and to leave our martyr uh, uh, alone. My favorite part of the, the dissonance is, I was watching somebody, they were talking about Michael Cohen, the lawyer who went to jail uh, for basically the same sort of situation that uh, uh, is being dealt with today. And someone said, how can you trust Michael Cohen? He's a felon. <laughs> and you go, right, you, you do know why he's a felon, right? That's, I mean, that's for the crime that he's being uh, accused of right now. But Phil, talk to that, which is, you're right. This system, it, it's like if, if uh, Al Pacino in A Justice for All, he said, you're out of order. This whole system is out of order. And, and they went, yes, it's completely out of order. Uh, our leader should walk free. And those people who steal wallets should get 15 years. Yeah. And so it's the people who are deserving of it. Right. Like that. That's, that's the it. whole bit. Right. That's the, the bit. bankers aren't deserving of it. Our guys yes. aren't deserving of it. Those folks are supposed to be protected, not bound. But these folks, they're deserving of to, what they're getting. That's I, right. I got two folks talking about cognitive dissonance. And so it got mentioned three times in like Beetlejuice, the psychology professor has to come out <laughs> and say, it's only cognitive dissonance if you think about it. You have right. to have cognitions around it. That's and right. what's happened is we've got a narrative that makes that those things not inconsistent. Oh. I believe that there are, there, are, um, there are justices that have been appointed who genuinely, genuinely believe there are big interests, right? Um, and those big interests, again, they're racialized. Like, we, we want to be anti-Semitic with them, so we call them Soros. So the, we're big interest. Big civil rights is now a thing, which I wish yes. civil rights could be big. But, but Yes, big CRT, baby. They're big interests are set up yes. to absolutely accost the victimized folks who are salt of the earth. And I am on their behalf because I am against anybody being able to organize regulation on those issues. Now, if you are too stupid to be successful like me, if you are too <laughs> poor to be successful like me, then just that's success for you. But you and I wow. are in cahoots and that's on the idea fault. that there's someone coming to get people like us, people right. who don't want regulation. That story that narrative is more powerful than our systems because our systems rely on a shared reality. And we have one group of folks who is incredibly large right now, statistically the minority, but powerful enough that they've got a shared reality that is disconnected from the cognitive dissonance we all would feel in that situation. But so that shared reality is explicitly a lie. And when you look at, and it's probably why no one uh, will communicate via email anymore or text message, when you look explicitly at something like a media organization like Fox News, where they say, we will perpetrate this reality distortion field, we will continue to prop it up, the infrastructure of it, we will continue to broadcast the, the hologram that we have created, because to not do so would be upsetting to the people whose world we have shaped and created, and we don't want to undercut that. And so that's what you're fighting. Fox News gives us a fantastic example of the ability to, to speak out of both sides of the mouth and make money in both pockets at the same time. Fantastic example. But what's, for me, critical in the lessons of Fox News is that intention is not required. Mm -hmm. They didn't need to know all of that uh, right, to be able to do it. All you got to do is be like, our audience is really upset about this. We should tell the story this way. And I genuinely believe that there are good faith people 
who are who have been suffering at the at the bad faith exploitation of folks who have the cognitive dissonance who right. know better. Who are just, they're just replicating the story, and it makes enough right. sense. It's what we always talk about. Me? Yeah. The, the, the difference between ignorance and malevolence, and, and ignorance being a highly curable condition, but, but certainly epidemic, and malevolence being a much narrower slice, but much more easy uh, to gain power and control, and, and that's how they do it. And, and David, it also speaks to our view in this country of a president as shockingly above the law. As much as we like to believe that we are a meritocracy and egalitarian and a representational democracy, Man, is that a kingly position to be in, not just for what I mean, Donald Trump has exposed the way that he does business, but presidents down the line have not been held accountable for any of the variety of, of misdemeanors and felonies that they've perpetrated. I, I mean, 50 years ago on national television, Richard Nixon said, if the president does it, it's not illegal. We have been <laughs> down this road before. Uh, and... The uh, arguments that Gerald Ford made to pardon Nixon for those right. crimes were very similar to the arguments that you're seeing today. We can't put the nation through this, this terrible spectacle. Uh, there will be consequences down the road. There will be tit for tat. Uh, we, we, we just can't do it. We have to hold. It's, it's a there is no alternative kind of thinking. We have to hold presidents somehow outside law and 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 Trump is a manifestation of that lack of accountability whether it was Nixon whether it was Reagan and Iran-Contra and Bush and Iran-Contra whether it was you know we we had a president 20 years ago that sent us to war on false purposes killed uh, hundreds millions of people in Iraq and a democratic president that did extrajudicial drone killings drone, drone killings torture i mean you know you go right. down the line the litany the rap sheet that we have on presidents right. is much larger than the people now sitting in our nation's prisons. But uh, we have have internalized this idea that Ford laid out very explicitly uh, uh, 50 years ago. And, and now we're seeing it come to the fore again, even with right. someone so obviously uh, corrupt. Who walked in the door that way. I mean, that's yeah. kind of my theory is that I think one of the reasons is kind of the Costanza, the, the, the Seinfeld thing. It's not a lie if you believe it. I think <laughs> one of the reasons Trump is truly baffled by this is he's one, you know, his company, Trump organization, was not a publicly owned company. So he ran by dictate, by fiat. Right. He right. was the king and, and ruler, you know, prima nocta. He could come in and do whatever the, you know, whatever he wanted to do. And his ass is kissed for 40 years. And so the presidency, far from being a kind of democratic institution that doesn't live up to its potential, to him is an extension of this, I, I decide. There is no checks and balance. There are no checks and balances at that organization. Right. So why would the country, what it is, is he made the United States a subsidiary of Trump, Inc., as opposed to bringing whatever business expertise he had into a democratic system. And I think it's why he's so baffled by this. Yeah, and, and to be clear, there, no one came along and held Trump, Inc. accountable, not since the civil rights violations of the 70s, but we don't like to talk about that. And so, right, and like, still, and still aren't. 
right? Still I mean, exactly. I mean, the, the, the Manhattan DA had, had two choices. He had two investigations that were going. One was these payouts to, to Stormy Daniels, Karen McDougal, whatever. And the other was, was about the Trump organization itself and its... Uh, the inflating of its values when it needed loans and the deflating, right. This prosecutor took one and, and got rid of the other. The one that was more replicable, maybe, to other businesses where you could have set a precedent. Um, it reminds and someone, me by the way, that. has gone to jail in both cases. Yeah. Weisselberg mm -hmm. went to jail yeah. in, in the one that you're talking about in terms of financial improprieties. Uh, uh, someone went to jail in terms of the things. Everyone around this cat, his lawyer, his uh, campaign manager, his uh, accountant. I mean, I, I think he might be a narc. I think <laughs> he's the one that's, that's he might be in. entrapping these poor people and getting them to commit crimes. He might be the guy who's actually an FBI informant. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I got to quote Nas. I'm, how can a kingpin squeal, though? Right? Like, he can't be the narc if he's the CEO. Uh, that, it doesn't work quite that I way. I don't know. I, I went to a chat room, and a guy online told me that he's doing this whole child uh, uh, sex abuse ring. He's going to round them up any day now. So the storm I'm is coming. Saying. You're saying that this is all, it's all part of the eight-dimensional chess. Your idea would be in line with that, that he is a master crime fighter by uh, starting with his own organization and all the corrupt people within it. I'm going to take you guys out outside of, of uh, sort of the realm of, of nerdy uh, discussions of, of what the actual you know, white-collar crimes and corruptions are and ask you both, is there a better system, and, and my anger happens to fall upon the media, where these kinds of things can be held accountable? Rather than 24 hours of a 7-Eleven security footage uh, outside of Mar-a-Lago as we await a man driving to the airport, which uh, I, I can never get enough of watching people driving to the airport. But what if there was, what if the media was focused viscerally, angrily on the things that you're both talking about, on implementing and educating their audience on how this all comes to be? And what the context is. Couldn't that do something? Please say yes. <laughs> I mean, that's why I talk about this in the context of kind of like a peacock prosecution. One of, one of the good, I think, models for it is, remember the guy who they called the Pharma Bro, uh, Martin Shkreli? Yes. Who was rounding up uh, 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 patents on, on very, uh, you know, what they call orphan drugs that don't affect a lot of people, and then jacking up the price. And he was brought to uh, uh, prosecution and jailed for what they called securities fraud. It wasn't for that, what I just described. It was that uh, somehow he, he, he defrauded investors in the process. I thought he was jailed for keeping Wu-Tang from the people. <laughs> well, there's, there's that's, also that aspect. That's what I thought it happened. But, but here's the point. In the years since uh, Shkreli did that and then went, went to jail for uh, related associated crimes, the entire system of the pharmaceutical industry has essentially adopted that practice of, of using uh, their patent authority to, to jack up prices to whatever they saw fit. He was a useful object that could be focused upon because he was kind of a dick. To, uh, to turn everyone's attention away from the actual 
uh, adoption the of those crimes, right. the systemic crimes happening below him. And right. I think this is a very similar aspect. So uh, the question is, you know, what could the media do? It, it's illuminate that very ordinary, run-of-the-mill, everyday uh, set of crimes that we live within uh, and, and, and meander through. And, and be relentless. Be as relentless as the system uh, uh, forces it to be, Phil. Uh, yeah, I, I, I wish I could agree. So first of all, if we had a media that did that, it would be banned in Florida. So there, there's limited utility in terms of all, right. all 50 states. All right. It doesn't have um, to go everywhere. I'm not saying go everywhere with it. So, so I, I, I got to say, media, we, we, we love to blame media for these sets of things. We want, we want better media. We need better media. But media can't be an education system. And media is not a, a, a substitute for the way the power structures work, right? right? So we think about education as its own thing, but it wasn't always its own thing. Like, you go to school to get a certain set of skills so you can work certain sets of jobs. And in some cases, the way we set up education systems actually in increases class stratification and income stratification. It's not a great equalizer. It should be. It can be. We utilize the genius of the nation better when it's equally distributed, but we know we don't do that shit. Right. So that's not just because the education system fails and our teachers are terrible. No, no, that's not what's going on. We've got moneyed interests that say we want to keep this education system this way. We want elite status so our kids can be have reserved rooms in the, the buildings that are named after us after we've made our billions. It's a more complex system than that. And we need a deeper education to be able to have media matter in order <clears throat> to, to get there. So what I'm saying is if we had daily coverage of the petty thefts that rich people pull in vulnerable neighborhoods every day. Mm -hmm. Sure, that would help if we had narratives that people, and, and a basic understanding that people had walking into watching the news, but we don't. So when I talk about structural racism in my classroom at Yale, which allegedly has some of the brightest minds in the country, and my students are fantastic, it's not a dig against them, they walk in and they say, well, cool, but what's the structure? And they're not asking that sarcastically. They say, well, who is the structure? Who do I hold accountable? How do I think about this? Mm -hmm. They show up to college without the tools to hold systems in their head. And what I'm saying is there are reasons why our education system doesn't teach that. We're seeing it play out not just in Florida, though that's a, a useful idiot um, kind of example. Mm -hmm. We're seeing that play out all over the country as we're banning books. Folks have a motivation. Let me back up a second. I'm like, I'm, in the, I'm at the end of a no, row. No, 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 baby, come on. Take us home. If we want to talk about how we get, we move through this, we're talking about the yes. fundamentals of what holds hold a society together. That's the yes. social contract. And the fundamentals of what holds a society accountable for those exploitations. Right. If you violate the social contract, there has to be consequences. That's the rationale for any kind of, of uh, punitive, uh, that's for a criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. Right. The social contract says there's some, some rules we're going to live by. Charles Mills comes along, he writes this book, which is the only pithy piece of philosophy ever, called The Racial Contract. And he says the racial contract is mimeographed underneath the social contract. It says that there are some people who get the full benefits and some people who don't, and we're going to decide that based on race. And what is required for us to have a two-tiered system is first, you just divide the stuff up, right? That's the political contract. Some people have more and some people have less. Second, the people who have more have to have a moral authority. They got to be good guys because if they're bad guys, the people on the bottom rise up. So how do you have the people with more also being good guys? The first of that is the third pillar of the racial contract. He calls that epistemologies of ignorance. And what he means is you didn't want to know that shit in the first place. 
and you didn't want to know that shit in the first place, is I am motivated to make sure you don't learn or have collective language for what's actually happening. It's why we need lawyers to understand contracts, right? right? It's why we need economists to understand the economy. So, if I could boil this, Bill, it's, it's this. Apple doesn't really need, when you're buying, a, a let's say, something from iTunes, to have a 20-page uh, terms of service thing that you're supposed to read through. These things are purposefully obtuse. So that understanding and digesting is a much more difficult operation. Therefore, uh, ignorance allows for possibility when it comes to those that control the systems. If you don't know what's going on and you can't possibly figure it out through that credit card uh, statement that they send to you, which is 30 pages long, when what it really should just say is don't buy such expensive T-shirts or whatever it is that that, that says, you can't get to the bottom of it. But I'll ask you this, Phil, and I, and I truly mean this. This system requires more than just entrenched poverty amongst black people. That's right. This system requires entrenched poverty amongst white people, too. It requires mm -hmm. a large underclass. And something is in the way of those groups being able to join together as well. And what's so interesting about it now is that entrenched poverty class of, let's call them non-black and brown people, are the exact ones being activated by this new populist rhetoric. And that is on purpose. That's, it. That's exactly right. Because going back to Nixon, Nixon said, you know what? We're about to have a problem. Because poor people like unions, because unions give them things that they need to survive. Right. And educated people don't like us because they have figured out our game. We need to segregate the white poor folks from everybody else. Because if the white poor folks get together with the black and brown poor folks and the educated folks, we're going to have a problem. We're going to be left with nothing. <laughs> he called that the Southern strategy, and it has been absolutely, both intentionally and unintentionally, the plan on the political right in this country ever fucking since. That's David. what I mean by epistemologies of ignorance. They right. don't want folks to know, and it's those people in particular that they don't want to know. I think it's important to add to this conversation in the context of this sort of right-wing populism and what activates it, is that this lack of elite accountability is what led to uh, the rise of Donald Trump. It's a rot at the heart of our democracy. If, if, if you can't have a situation where someone who's powerful or well-connected ever gets held accountable, you're going to look to other solutions uh, to the, the, the pressing problems that you have. Explanations for your powerlessness. Yeah. Exactly. And, and it's going to lead to demagoguery. And, and, and so I, I think when you, when you look at this and, and think about you know, causes and, and then solutions, you have to look at this culture of letting off people who engage in these systemic crimes mm -hmm. as, as, as part, the biggest part, in my view, of the problem and what we need to counteract, not with better education around it, but with the political will uh, to, to actually go after these people. Now, I, I mean, it is interesting that we've seen this SEC really try to take down the, the, the web of fraud in crypto. It's interesting that uh, right, but so far all they've gotten is like they've gotten Kim Kardashian to pay a fine. Like they're not, you know. It's it's always talk about peacock prosecutions. That's the FBI, SBF guy, right? It is interesting that there is 
uh, you know, you remember the Wells Fargo fake account scandal? Sure. Um, where they had millions of accounts created uh, behind the backs of, of, of folks. Uh, Carrie Tolstead, who ran that, uh, that consumer banking operation at Wells Fargo, is going to jail. Uh, she she lied to the FBI, which is what you just can't do. Right. Um, and so one thing so, they can get them on. Yeah, exactly. And uh, so it's it's good to see these one offs, but it's not a culture yeah. that's been no. created of right. elite accountability. And that is what causes people to take to the streets. It's what causes people to listen to people who say, I have the solution to all this. Um, uh, and it's very integrated into the sort of right-wing populism that you're talking about. Right. But when all that is exposed as the music man, as, as fraud, uh, and as a reality distortion field, it's going to be, it's going to be a hard, it's going to be a hard crash. And, and it always is. Uh, gentlemen, my goodness, uh, just, I, I, I could sit here talking to you guys, uh, all day. For God's sakes, David Dane, executive editor of the American Prospect, Dr. Philip Atiba Goff, Phil, co-founder and CEO of Center for Policy and Equity, the chair of Carl Huffington, Yale. I'm just going to say Yale. Phil's at Yale, for God's sakes. Get yourself up there. Get a slice of pizza and go listen to him talk. He's brilliant. Jesus. Uh, guys, thank you so much. And uh, I hope to talk to you guys again real soon. Always a pleasure. Thank Thanks, you. John. So that's it, guys. Uh, please tune into the uh, show. On Apple TV Plus, the problem, and also we're taking a, a little bit of a break on the podcast. We'll be back. I don't know exactly when, but not too long. I'm going to be dropping a few in there, here and there, because I get very lonely. Uh, anyway, see you soon. Bye-bye. <laughs>